And now this week we move into chapter 7 of John's Gospel. Uh, If you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, uh, you will find that on page 892. At least that's where we'll begin. And it's been approximately six months since the time of chapter 6. Now, how do we know that? Well, the backdrop for chapter 6 is the Passover, uh, which is mentioned at the very beginning of that chapter. And then, as you'll hear in just a moment, the backdrop for chapter 7 and and into chapter 8 is is the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And so there's approximately six months between Passover uh, and this particular feast. Now, if you have already read the passage... Uh, you will know that it is a very full passage. There is a lot going on. Uh, Some of it may be a bit confusing. Uh, In fact, I uh, know of a pastor that took four weeks to preach through these 24 verses. We're taking one Sunday to do that. And so what I'm going to do is take a broad view of most of it, and then we're going to dive into the heart of Jesus' teaching uh, near the end of the passage. So, with that said, let's pray. Our good and mighty God, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray once again that by the power of your spirit, you would open your word to us. and That you would open us to your word. Teach us, challenge us, change us, we pray that we might more and more reflect your glory and grow in your grace. Amen. And so John, chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of God. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, 
My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath... A man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of God. Well, there are several different ways that we could walk through this passage Of course, I'm reading from the the ESV, and assume most of you are are reading along with that version. And the, the, the editorial notes there, there's one heading, just one heading for these 24 verses. Now, if you're reading from the NIV and and some other translations, there are two headings, uh, verses 1 to 13, uh, Jesus goes to the feast, and then verses 14 to 24, Jesus teaches at the feast. And so that's how we're going to go through the passage today, using those two headings to navigate our way through. They're not points per se, uh, but headings just to to help us as as we journey through the passage together. So Jesus goes to the feast, and Jesus teaches at the feast. So we begin with verses 1 to 13. Jesus goes to the feast, which obviously... He doesn't go, at least not immediately, and then later he does go. Okay, and we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But the section begins, verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Okay, so dial back just to last week and the the weeks prior. That's where we have been, chapter 6, we have been in Galilee. And so Jesus has continued to go around Galilee uh, for these past Six months. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. You see, Jerusalem, down south in the southern region there of Judea, Jerusalem was shark-infested water. Okay, shark-infested waters. There will soon be much talk about that as we move into the summer. And of course, one of the all-time great summer blockbuster hits, and one of my favorites, is the movie Jaws. Now, there are many great scenes, but one of the scenes that I particularly like is when the the rough-hewn, weathered captain, captain of this small boat, Quint, when Quint watches Hooper, the young, sophisticated, rich, and educated 
oceanographer. He is loading onto the boat all of his gadgets and toys. And he asks Hooper about one of them, and, and Hooper says that it's an anti-shark cage. And Quint laughs when he realizes that Hooper plans to get into this cage and go down into the water where there is this huge, killer, great white shark. Because it is a place of sure and certain death. Well, Jerusalem, for Jesus, was shark-infested waters. A place of sure and certain death. But, but his appointed time to die, verse 6, his appointed time to die had not yet come. And so once again, John is signaling something for us. John is giving us a clear reminder that Jesus is on the road to the cross. But the time has not yet come. In verses 3 to 5, we see that Jesus' own brothers, they pressure him. Go, go to Jerusalem, go to the big city, go to the center of our religious worship and prove yourself. Prove yourself to the world. And really what we see is that they're saying prove yourself to us. Because as it says, not even his brothers, those who grew up with him, not even his brothers believed in him. And so again, John is signaling something for us, just as we saw last week. John is making clear that mere association with Jesus, that mere association with Jesus and his followers doesn't automatically make you a true disciple, a true follower. Okay, so then at the end of the section, we see that the Jewish leaders are most definitely looking for Jesus. And of course, we all, as readers, we know why. And we see that the Jewish people, they're, they're clearly divided as to whether is he good or is he bad. But note one thing that they are not saying. No one thinks that he's possibly God's Messiah, the Christ, God's Son our Savior. Okay, well, let's go back to the middle of this section because there's some verses there that may be confusing, uh, even troubling uh, for some. Uh, verses 8 to 10. So Jesus, speaking to his brother, says, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. Okay, well, the, the explanation, it, it's actually pretty simple. So to start, the, the Greek present tense in verse 8 can legitimately have the sense, I am not now going, or I am not yet going. Uh, which some translations use, and, and you may have that in front of you right now. And clearly, Jesus doesn't go. He doesn't go immediately, but rather he does wait a few days. And also, you can take a look at the context. Uh, the context of verse 10 makes clear that Jesus' time to go back to Jerusalem publicly 
hasn't yet come. And so he doesn't go back publicly, but rather privately. Okay, but maybe you're thinking, how in the world does Jesus go privately when he's a public figure? Okay, well, think about it. Times were a little different back then. Okay, no photography, no television, no internet, no social media. Took a picture, tweeted it, people can see it. No. Plus, I mean, what does Jesus look like? Probably pretty much like a lot of the other Jewish men at at that day. You've seen Jesus, what's he look like? Well, kind of a darker complexion, long, dark, curly hair, dark eyes. Uh, A beard. Okay, that's helpful. But yeah, but still, you're thinking, surely, surely, some people have seen him, spent time with him, watched him. Surely there are some who are going to remember what he looks like. That's him, isn't it? Well, that's what I would think. But I remember the time that Bono, of you two, I remember the time that Bono uh, came to visit my seminary. Problem was, none of us saw him. Now, I mean, we saw him, but we didn't recognize him. You see, he's, he's friends with Eugene Peterson, who taught at the seminary, and he'd actually come this particular day uh, to see a preaching professor of mine, a guy by the name of Daryl. Uh, Daryl had been the, the pastor of a large church, Uh, down in Los Angeles for a while, and that's the church that Bono would go to when he was in town. So Bono was in Vancouver, and he thought he would come by the seminary and say hello to Daryl. Well, what apparently happened, that we later found out from Daryl, is that Bono had come and taken off his sunglasses and donned a baseball cap. And so none of us recognized him. So to put it simply, going to the feast... Jesus took off his sunglasses and donned a baseball cap. But whereas Bono merely visited the seminary, Jesus went there to teach. That brings us to the next section. Verses 14 to 24. Jesus teaches at the feast. And so this section begins... Uh, Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Okay, now does that strike anyone? This public figure, unwanted, goes up into the temple and began teaching? Okay, how in the world was Jesus able to teach in the temple? Well, he actually wasn't. In other words, he actually wasn't teaching in the temple building, the the, the building proper. Rather, he was teaching in the temple courts. Now, how do we know that? Well, it's the Greek word that's used here. It means the larger area surrounding the temple. That's the word that John uses, the temple courts. And so you, you might think about it like this, kind of the difference between a conversation in the parking lot outside and teaching in the worship area right here. So Jesus wasn't invited to preach in the worship area per se, but he did pull up into the parking lot and say a few words. And that was common. That was common in the temple courts for people to begin teaching on different things, and if they did well, they would have a gathering. Well, we see in verse 15, 
then clearly he's a good teacher because the people are impressed. Now, based on the, the look, I'm sure that Jesus had, he didn't look like all the religious uh, teachers, they are a bit confused. They're impressed because of his depth of knowledge, the depth of knowledge that this man possesses, but seemingly an untrained rabbi, and, and, and really not even a rabbi. Now, they're, they're still unsure of who he is. So he's just a man that they don't recognize who's, who's teaching, but they're impressed by this man's teaching. And Jesus addresses the crowd's curiosity in those next couple of verses. He declares that his teaching comes directly from God. My teaching is not my own. The teaching is from God. As scholar Mark Johnston writes, Jesus stakes his integrity on the fact that there should be a recognizable consistency, a complete consistency between everything that he says and everything that God has already said in the scriptures. And then Jesus refers to Moses. Jesus refers to Moses as a way to reveal their inconsistency with what God has said in the Scriptures. He reveals the inconsistency between their professed adherence to the law and their secret plan to kill him. So the people, initially impressed, are now enraged. Verse 20, they're filled with rage because Jesus' words expose their sin. Sin exposed. Okay, think about it. Nobody likes having that happen. Nobody likes being called out. Nobody likes being told they're wrong. Just ask my wife. So, uh... Yeah, I know, it sounds like it's going to get me in trouble, doesn't it? Uh, So Heather's mom was visiting us this past week. And most every day, the three of us had lunch together. And on Wednesday, I asked how their morning had gone. And Heather just sighed. They had gone to the grocery store, and and she explained that she likes to go earlier in the day because there are less people and the lines aren't as long. And she also likes self-checkout. So they'd gone up to the self-checkout. All the, you know, little kiosks were taken up. But, but there wasn't any line, so Heather and her mom stepped up with the cart full of groceries until they hear this loud voice, Hey, you, the line starts back there. Well, thank you. Nobody likes being told they're wrong. Nobody likes being called out. Oh, but it doesn't end there. Because they finally paid for their groceries. They head out to the car, they're in the parking lot, and they see Pete Bowell. And Heather, you know, goes and gives Pete a hug, and they they talk for a moment about Margie until all of a sudden another voice. Hey, could you move out of the way? Can't you see we're trying to back out? Nice day at the grocery store. Nobody likes being told they're wrong. Nobody likes being called out, especially when it's brusque and in your face. But that's precisely what Jesus does to the people here. That's precisely what Jesus does to those who think that they are so very right. Verses 19 to 24. 
Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was for Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Well, what's going on here? Okay, well, the the people still don't know exactly who he is. They're beginning to get some clues, though. He's beginning to reveal who he is. It'd be like if Bono had picked up a guitar that day and played a riff. So they're starting to wonder. And, you know, the Jews in Jerusalem, what's very clear is that the Jews in Jerusalem had not forgotten the last time that Jesus had visited. That's back in chapter 5. This is the start of chapter 5, when Jesus had, in their minds, broken the Sabbath law. Where he had broken the Sabbath by healing a man. By healing someone who was probably paralyzed or lame. And they'd wanted to kill him then, as it says back in chapter 5. And we've already seen here that they're still seeking to kill him. And here, Jesus accuses the people, especially the religious leaders, of breaking the law themselves by plotting to kill him, a clear breach of the commandment not to murder. And then, Jesus gives a tightly reasoned argument to support his action. James Boyce offers a helpful summary. Jesus' argument went something like this. It was the law of the Old Testament that a male child should be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. Naturally, the eighth day would often fall on the Sabbath. But it was the teaching of the rabbis that everything necessary for circumcision could be done on the Sabbath day. Well, said Jesus, don't you see what you're doing? You say that you fully observe the law that was given to you through Moses, including the laws concerning the Sabbath. The laws of the Sabbath forbid work, and you take that to mean every kind of activity except that which is absolutely necessary to save save life. And so technically, this should exclude circumcision. Yet you permit it, which is right for you to do. However, notice that circumcision is a form of cutting So how hypocritical then for you to blame me for curing a man's body, making it whole, when you, for the sake of religious observance, actually cut it on the Sabbath day? Or put more simply, Jesus asks the crowd for consistency in their reasoning. Why is it wrong for him to heal on the Sabbath When circumcision that wounds is something they permit on that day. 
And what Jesus is doing here is he is intentionally frustrating the people. Frustrating the people is a way to help them actually listen to what he is saying. He is helping them and us understand the purpose of the law. He is helping them and us understand the purpose of the law so that we can be people who, verse 24, judge with right judgment. And basically it's this. Think of the law. Think of God's word as a mirror. Okay, the, the purpose of a mirror is to show you your face. And if your face is dirty, to show you that your face is dirty. Now the purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face. The purpose of a mirror is to drive the person who sees the dirt to the soap and water that cleans. And similarly, the purpose of the law is to drive the person who sees their sin to Jesus, who washes sin away. Well, later in the New Testament, James likens God's word to a mirror. Just a side note, remember James is the brother of Jesus. And so some of the brothers did eventually come to believe. But later in the New Testament, James likens God's word to a mirror. And looking into the mirror of God's word helps us see rightly. It helps us judge with right judgment. Assessing ourselves accurately and assessing God's grace accurately. Years ago, I heard it put this way. When you look into the mirror of the Bible, you'll see two things. You'll see that you are radically fallen due to sin, and you'll see that you are infinitely exalted through faith in Jesus Christ. So you'll see that you are radically fallen and that you are infinitely exalted. On the one hand, you see that you are messed up just like everyone else. You need a Savior. The person next to you needs a Savior. As the saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You've heard that saying before, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Okay, but do we really believe that? Because I, I was thinking about that phrase uh, this, this past week. And you know, we often act like the ground is terraced at the foot of the cross. Like there are, there are those, those good Christians and then there are the lesser Christians. You may have been a good Christian and then you do something not so good and you become a lesser Christian. Maybe you're a lesser Christian and you're trying to climb up. Everything's below the cross, but we often act like the ground is terraced at the foot of the cross, depending on what somebody has done or not done. And friends, that is the problem of self-righteous clinging to our own efforts in any way, shape, or form. And that's to miss Jesus, just like the people in our story. So on the one hand, you see that you are messed up just like everyone else that you are radically fallen 
and thus in radical need of Jesus. <clears throat> well, on the other hand, you see that you are valued just like everyone else. That everybody has dignity and worth. You, the person next to you, dignity and worth created in the image of God. You see that Christ has died for you and that Christ has died for others around you. And through faith in Jesus, you are infinitely exalted, joined to him in his glory, in his righteousness. You see, looking into the mirror of God's word helps us to judge with right judgment. One theologian writes, The Bible shows us that in and of ourselves we are unable to do what the law commands us to do, but Jesus did it for us. And because he lives in us by his Spirit, we are now enabled to do it. Not from mere obligation, but from a, but from a growing delight. You see, every command in Scripture points us to our own inadequacy, magnifies the good and holy nature of God, and causes us to look to Jesus, the one who forgives our disobedience and enables our obedience. In other words, God's word continually drives us to Jesus so that we can be people who Verse 24, judge with right judgment. The gospel writer John makes clear, the only right judgment is that Jesus is God's Son and our Savior, and that we must trust in Him and in Him alone. And it's in judging with right judgment that we're then able to be truly honest about ourselves and our need, and thus truly grateful for God's provision. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have spoken, that you have given us your word, which continually drives us back to you. Would you help us to see ourselves and others more accurately, to understand your love and your grace more fully, and to trust you in everything. Amen.